listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Uh, let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 27, where we find ourselves today. And I promise it's not tied to serving. I probably should have picked something that would convict more people in that area, but I didn't. Uh, instead, in, it, in this psalm, we're going to see the hope of God in times of difficulties. In uh, David's light and how his, sorry, in times of difficulty, in David's light and how, its knowledge, and how his knowledge of the Father gives him comfort, confidence, counsel, and commitment to the Lord. Let's read Psalm 27 together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted high above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, I will sing and make a melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So we join one of the many Psalms written by David and in it, we see swings that don't seem coherent. And honestly, that's one of the things I love about this psalm. He'll go from praise and worship, seeming so secure in the God he's writing about, to what seems uncertainty and pleading for God to do the very thing he was just confident that he would do. And I don't know about you, but that reflects my life. If you were to take a snapshot of my emotions, my thoughts, even in the same day, it might appear to be that of two very different people. In the morning, when considering my problems, it's God, thank you for your grace. I don't know how things are going to play out, but I'm so glad that I can trust you with everything that's going on. But by the afternoon, those same problems in my mind that were there that morning are met with doubt and fear. My heart will be asking, God, where are you? There's no good outcome for this. Which, unlike David, 
uh, that we see in most of David's songs, it turns into me trying to figure out what I have to do to make it be a good outcome, right? David, while he does shift a lot in the psalm, he doesn't switch to that mode. And Christian, you shouldn't either. When those thoughts come to mind, it should be a reminder to us all the more to turn our attention back to the one who's in control of all things. David describes many obstacles he's considering as he's writing the psalm. In verse two, we see evildoers seeking to eat up his flesh. I've never had that against me, I don't think. Uh, We see armies rising against him, wars rising, being forsaken by his father and mother, being slandered by enemies, seeking to destroy his reputation, waiting for him to stumble and fall so they can have triumph. In all this, David points his heart, his affection to God. And from this text today, I want us to see how David's trust in God leads to a greater joy and peace that surpasses our situations that we find ourselves in. And those situations are unique in their detail. And it often feels us leaving, or feels us feeling alone and as though nobody can understand what we're going through. Just this past week, Chris and I were up here and we were talking to someone going through an extremely tough time. And with tears in his eyes, he asked us, do you know what it's like to go through this? And we can only answer with no. Like, we don't know what it's like to go through that. We, I cannot relate to your specific pain brought on by specific situations, but church, we can all relate to struggles. We have all experienced hardships. We, have, we haven't faced armies camp against us, most of us, seeking our death, but we have faced people with ill intent, We have faced manipulation. We face hard times, loss of friends, loss of family members. But no matter the extent of what you have experienced, being grounded in the hope we have in God gives us more peace and more hope that outweigh the difficult times we face. If our faith is built on the truths of God revealed to us in Scripture, we would quickly join in with Paul in his letter to the Romans, right? It says, we consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But that foundation of faith needs to be built or laid, maybe a more appropriate terminology. And I believe that in this psalm, we see the foundation of David's faith as he builds upon these foundational truths facing our hard times. He finds his comfort in God. And that's the first thing I want us to see is David's comfort in God. Look back at verses one through three. He says, the, light is my, uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Foundations, for those of us not familiar in the construction world, are normally pretty plain, right? They're not aesthetically pleasing. They're not beautiful or anything to marvel at for the most part. Yet without them, the structure would quickly be condemned. It wouldn't hold up or last long when pushed to the extreme. We think about places like California or other places along the fault lines. Their foundations have to be secure enough to withstand earthquakes. Without them, the buildings would simply collapse. But it's in these verses we see the foundations of David's theology 
on display when facing extreme difficulties. It comforts him and reminds him of the God he knows, the God that he can trust in. Verse 1 specifically captures this foundation. He reminds himself of three truths about God, that he is his light, he is his salvation, and he is his stronghold of his life. And what I like about that is that it's a picture of a threefold cord that are the truths about God. And just as this past week, I was in Ecclesiastes for my daily Bible reading. Solomon, David's son, says, A man might prevail against one who is alone. Two will withstand him, but a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, these truths about God are not a person, but they are our defense when we are facing problems, when we are facing extreme uh, situations. And we should find comfort in that threefold core truth about God. But notice, if you will, how David, um, these truths for him are personal, right? He says, the Lord is my light, my salvation, my stronghold, right? This isn't a doctrine that David's been taught and now he's just repeating it. It's personal for him. Is something he knows and believes in his inner being. Even when we see later on in his petition to God, it seems that he's worried he might lose some relationship with God. He starts by building his foundation here. And because of that, he'll end after going through so many different emotions with hope. When you have a strong foundation, you have a place to stand firm while in the middle of chaos. It's important to now talk about the narrowness of David's insight here. He mentions these things and he believes these things, yet his hope is in something that hasn't happened yet. Something that he doesn't know all the details about. It's something that we actually had the benefit of seeing more clearly than David did. Before we started this series, the Summer in Psalms, we did the I Am Statements of Christ. And the first one we looked at here in Locust Grove was Christ saying that he is the light of the world. Mark preached from that in John 8, 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. David didn't know Christ, but he knew any light he had, any salvation he would get would be from the graciousness of God that there would be nothing he could do in order to obtain these things, but it was a gift from God. And one of the amazing things about this is that people refer to David himself as the lamp, the light, if you will, of Israel. Many of you are familiar with the um, story of David and Goliath. Well, later on, Goliath's descendants came back and sought to kill David, but David's army was successful in defending him But after they were done, they told him that he could no longer come to battles with him anymore so as not to quench the lamp of Israel, the light of Israel. But instead of letting this go to his head, he has the humility and wisdom to understand that it's still God who is his light, the light of not only Israel, but the light of the world. But it should be no surprise to us that because David followed God, sought after him, that he too had the light of life in him as Christ promised us. And people recognize that in him. Because if you walk in the light and have the light, 
the people around you in a dark world will notice. And God being this light is a comfort to David. When everything screams that he should be afraid, there's darkness everywhere. But why would he fear, he asks. The darkness will not prevail. He knows the light of the world. We know the light of the world. He continues that not only will he not fear because he knows the light of the world, but because he knows the plans of the wicked will ultimately come to ruin. And I don't know about you, but it often doesn't feel that way. There are many times we see even in Scripture, even in the Psalms, where it appears that the wicked and the cunning prosper, that they don't stumble and fall. But we must remind ourselves of the truth of the victory that God has already completed against sin and death. That though in this life, sin and corruption will have moments of prosperity, the victory has already been won. We will see all adversaries and foes of the Lord stumble and fall to rise no more. And as we close looking at the comfort that David has here, I want to expand on this imagery we see, at least what I picked up on. David draws this picture of an army being encamped against him as he stands alone in the midst of them. And it's implied here is that the Lord is his salvation, his stronghold of his life, that the Lord is with him, that he's not alone. And again, we get to see with greater clarity of how, that, how true that is for us because we know the promise of Jesus, right? That we are promised the indwelling presence of the Spirit. In John 14, Jesus says that he will not leave us as orphans and that he will ask the Father and he will give us another helper to be with us forever. And when we are saved, we are promised that presence of the Spirit. And having him is a much more intimate promise than the saints of old could have could grasp. And it should be a great comfort to us knowing that we are never truly alone. And I pray that we as a church would be on the lookout for one another. When we see someone appearing to face an army alone, that we would join with them and remind them that they are not alone, that they are part of a greater family that they are our brothers and sisters and we are in the fight with them. That's how this church should work. Yet I know that's not always the case. You will have people fail you, fail to be there for you, fail to speak up for you as others slander and attack you. But brother, sister, the Lord has not abandoned you. When you are his, he stands by you in the day of trouble and that should give us great comfort. After David reveals his foundation that he has in God. We see next how that brings him a great confidence in God. Let's look at verses four and six again. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make a melody of the Lord. These verses start off by David telling us the one thing he asked of the Lord, the one thing he wants to seek after. And while this is a request, it shows us 
his desire. It showcases the confidence he has in the Lord that he can not only reach out to the Father, but that he expects the Father to hear him. It comes from the personal, intimate relationship with the Lord. He's not so far off from David that he doesn't think his request will go unanswered. He's confident. He's confident enough to say um, that he says, even before he answered, he's going to seek after the thing that he's desiring. And I think that showcases how we are to live our life in light of God's sovereignty. That though he knows and we know that God is fully in control, he still affirms that he's going to seek after the thing he asks. He doesn't just say, hey, I asked the Lord and I'm just going to let him do his thing. No, he says, I'm going to seek after this. He's going to take action and walk according to what he knows is good and right and pray that his desires are in line with the Father's. And if so, if they are, he trusts that the Lord will answer his prayer positively, he hopes. And his desires are in line with Scripture. His desires to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, to gaze upon that beauty and to inquire in his temple. Those are good, God-given desires. And while looking over this the past week, I started examining my own heart, asking, what am I longing for? What am I seeking after? And I must confess that as I considered this over the last few weeks, the response I got was selfishness most of the time. I want peace, but not for peace sake, just because I don't want to deal with anything else, right? I want peace for myself. I want rest because I'm exhausted. Uh, I want comfort because nobody wants to be uncomfortable. I want all these because I don't want the bad negative feelings associated with not having these things. I was actively seeking out pleasure, entertainment, and rest for my own selfish desire. Worse yet, I would ask God for these things to my own end of selfishness. I found that I was seeking after my own desires for my own worldly benefit. And it's not like I was asking for gain. I wasn't asked, asking to win the lottery. I would not complain, but I was just asking for selfish reasons. Yet David shows us what we should be asking of the Lord, what we should be seeking, and that's to dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This isn't a hope that David has for after he dies, but this is a hope that he's expecting to experience even now. In the dwelling, of the dwelling in the house of the Lord that's used in Psalms a few times isn't trying to say that David only wanted to live in the tabernacle, but it's trying to communicate that he wants to continually be in the presence of the Lord. One place uh, that I read says, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever also suggests living with an attitude of heart that expresses constant praise and worship. And I think that emphasizes what Spurgeon said when he was talking about Psalm 23, about dwelling in the house of the Lord. He says, while I am here, I will be a child alone with my God. The whole world will be his house. And when I ascend into the upper chamber, I shall not change my company, nor even change the house. I shall only go to dwell in the upper story of the house of the Lord forever. Friends, we may begin dwelling in the house of the Lord now, both here in this building and when we leave here. And we can take comfort when Paul tells us that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither things present 
nor, nor present, nor future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from that presence, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His presence is with us now, and we may dwell in it, and we should with thanksgiving and praise. David is seeking to make this a reality. And what it, he's seeking, and when I think about this word seeking, I imagine a video game. I'm, uh, I play video games. I'm not afraid to admit it. And I started playing one recently that has a map. And as you explore on the map, it opens up more and more areas. And I'm the type of person, as I play, I want to seek out every nook and cranny. I want to seek out everything that may be hiding in those corners. And that's the kind of the image I got of David when he says he seeks the Lord's presence. Are we wanting to do everything we can to find every nook and cranny to find out more and more about the Lord? And we do this through a few simple disciplines, right? Many of us are familiar with them, but they're worth repeating. We do this through his word and not just reading it, but studying it. We do it through the teaching of the word and we do that through communion with him by prayer. Are you seeking him the way that you would if you were discovering every nook and cranny on a map? And when you do, it's understandable that you would have the confidence that we see of David here. Confident that the Lord he knows and seeks after will protect him in the day of trouble and conceal him from harm. David was sure that he would be lifted high upon a rock, safely out of reach of his enemies. Yet we know that we are resting on the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. I want to end this section by pointing out again, this confidence doesn't lead to David's pride. The last half of verse 6 shows that David acknowledges the one who keeps him safe. It causes him to offer sacrifices to God. It leads to shouts of joy, and it leads him worshiping through song to the Lord. When we seek after the Lord, when we know where our help comes from, as Michael preached on recently, it should lead our hearts to worship. Our confidence is not in us, but it's in him who is in control of all things. As we go on, David turns this psalm to a prayer, a petition to God, showing that even though he has this foundation, he's found comfort and confidence in, um, he has the foundation he's found comfort and confidence in, he now seeks the counsel of God. Read with me 7 through 12. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. So we see David's soul has been comforted by his knowledge of who God is and the confidence he has in the Lord as his protector. David now shifts to petition to God. The tone of the psalm changes. Some people even think that this originally could have been two different psalms. And I see the argument for that, but I think it's more likely that David 
is building up to prayer. That those first six verses are him building up before he turns his attention to prayer now. And he starts off his prayer by asking for favor, to be heard by the Father. He knows that God is omniscient and knows all things. But it's one thing to know God knows your thoughts. It's another thing to know that God is attentively listening and hearing your prayers. So this is David's plea. Hear me. Be gracious to me. And in this, I see encouragement for us. Are you not sure how to approach the Father? Unsure if what you are saying will be heard? I think David felt that way here too. I think David felt that way with the confidence he has. He draws near to the throne. He reminds the Lord that he has commanded us to seek his face. We find that in 2 Chronicles 7. It's a verse that some of you may be familiar with. It's used a lot when talking about the U.S. as a nation. It's the one that says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. David prays that he's been doing what the Lord has called him to do. He's been seeking the Lord's face. And that Hebrew word face is often translated into presence. When we are seeking the Lord's face, we are seeking his presence. We are seeking to be with him, to know him. If all our days are spent on our task, it wouldn't be fruitless. Yet there are many distractions that keep us from that, right? Many of us have jobs that distract us throughout the majority of the day. Most in this room are parents with the many responsibilities that come with raising kids. Those, necessarily, those necessary daily tasks that just consume good chunks of our time. Our life isn't lived in this bubble where we get to wholly devote every minute to the study and worship of the Lord. Yet despite that, our heart's longing and desire should be to know him more. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, we are given a picture. We are told what eternal life is. It says, eternal life is that they may know you, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Friends, I don't know what that looks like when we get to heaven, but I know eternal life has already begun. We do not wait for the life to come before we start our journey to eternal or of eternal life. If you're a believer, you can already get to know the Father. You can get to know the Son. And when you do that, you know life but David knows the importance of seeking the presence of God. And while many things will distract us from that, many things will tempt us to do otherwise. Turn your attention to the Lord and get to know him. But it begs the question why, after reciting all these truths about God, acknowledging how he is his light and salvation and telling us everything the Lord has done for him, protecting him, does David plead for the Lord to hear him? It seems like he's almost uncertain if the Lord would look on him with favor. And I feel the answer is simple, yet it's one we often overlook. David knows his unworthiness before the Lord. He knows God's complete holiness. 
David's sinful state is not lost on him. And especially for the Israelites, this could have been bad news if you approached God without being pure. If we consider all the work that was done to purify oneself, so we would be here for a while. And David knows as we do that sin does not stand in the presence of the Lord. We can consider the men who grabbed onto the ark with their hand disobeying the Lord's command and they were immediately struck down. Or how Moses had to hide himself in the cleft of the rock as the Lord's presence passed by. And after the temple was built, the priest would have to go through the purification ritual to enter the Holy of Holies or face certain death. David knows that his sin has separated him from the Lord. That in light of God's holiness, though he is a man after God's own heart, he is unworthy of the Father's presence on his own. And that's not only true for David, but for all mankind since Adam and Eve first brought sin into the world by disobeying the Lord's command. But David here appeals to God's graciousness, laying out that he's trusting God for his salvation, and he approaches him out of humility and pure dependence. And we, in light of everything, get to appeal to the grace of the finished work of Jesus. That though our sin has separated us from God, the Father has made a way for us to be reunited with him again. And it's thankfully, not through any cleansing rituals or purification, but it's by the blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. David knew his salvation was, would come from the Lord, and we know that it was accomplished for us all through his Son. So how can we who have never made any kind of sacrifice approach the Father? We can do so by pointing to our first brother, Christ, saying, he has made me clean. He has counted me as righteousness. He has paid the price for my sin. I am counted clean because of him. And David, while resting on the future hope of salvation, a salvation that only comes from the Lord, pleads to God. And we hear the heart of David's conscience that those closest to him, his father and mother have forsaken him. But you, Lord, are more than that. You are my Lord. Do not forsake your servant now. Take me in and hear my pleas for help. And I think it's important to notice what he requests of the Lord. He doesn't request wisdom like Solomon, which was a good thing. He doesn't request for monetary gain, but he, uh, he asked to be led on a level path so that he would not fall into his enemies. And why does he do that? I believe he's doing that because he's doing, he wants to do what the Lord has commanded. He believes the prophets that he is to reign over the land and establish the Lord's kingdom, a kingdom that would that we would see come to fruition much later. He is seeking for God's will to be done, for God's glory, not his own. He's only asking the Lord to keep his steps level. But in verses 11 and 12, he talks of the enemies and adversaries who are rising against him. And the tough part to reconcile here as we consider this is that he's most likely talking about his own kinsmen, other Israelites, the nation that God has called out to be his own the same people that he has been told that David would lead are the same enemies that are seeking to destroy him. And when I think about this, I can't help but consider the church today. 
There are many people who go to church, but they wait for the children of God to stumble, looking for the first sign of the foot stumbling so they can pounce on an opportunity to bring someone, anyone down. And even if it wasn't happening here in our local church, do we consider the churches around us who might do things slightly different? Do we rejoice when their leaders misstep or stumble? And I would pray that it's not so. I pray that we would have a spirit of graciousness looking to come alongside them and remind them of the greater family we are called into. I promise you the church has enough enemies outside of itself. It does not need any internal strife to add to it. I'm reminded of the words in Ephesians when Paul's talking about what it means to be a Christian. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Brothers and sisters, let that be us. Seek out those who you have sinned against. Ask for forgiveness. And if you are one of the ones who have been sinned against, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. David is dealing with enemies seeking his life, his own kinsmen. We often deal with enemies who would try to bring us down in other ways. May their shame be complete lest they turn to the Lord for forgiveness. But there's wisdom in David's prayer that We should wholly seek after ourselves, and that's to be led on that level path of God. Though we may and must plan our own way, let us pray that it is the Lord that establishes our steps. That's the path we know we can trust, despite any enemy or adversary. We end by looking at how, after seeking the Lord's counsel, David turns his attention back to the works of the Lord. And we see David's commitment to the Lord. Look look there in verse 13. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So we end by seeing this culmination of his comfort, confidence, and counsel leading back to a commitment in the Lord. Despite all these circumstances he's facing, he says, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And again, going back to, the, the, going back to heaven, there's reason to believe that he's talking about this e, uh, eternal hope that he's had, that he is talking about heaven. That heaven, a place where there is no sin, there is no death, is truly the land of the living. And David does hope that he will see God in all his goodness on display there. And that's certainly true. However, the land of the living isn't limited to heaven. David believes that though there are many evildoers in this land, it's still a land where he will see the work of God and the goodness that comes from him. And I know that by my own nature, I tend towards pessimism and something I'm truly aware of and pray against. I don't think the nature of my job normally helps with that. Uh, Michael asked me Wednesday, he's like, what did you actually do today? Uh, as Michael does. And so I didn't know how to answer right then because I couldn't shop talk with him. He wouldn't understand. 
But as I reflected later, it's really summed up in I'm looking for problems or trying to solve problems or dealing with problems that come up. My job constantly requires me to look for what's wrong and finding a solution for it. It's very oversimplified, but I won't lie. It's not hard to carry that over to other areas of my life, analyzing every situation and looking for problems, expecting there to be problems. But as believers, we should shift our expectations toward hope. Yes, there will be troubles. Christ himself reminds us of that, that in this world we will have troubles, but we should take heart because he has overcome the world. Our disposition should be one of expectation to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And that goodness is seen in us, his children. As we interact with one another, as we serve the people around us, we get to be the messengers of the goodness that the Lord is working. We know that the Lord is our light and our salvation in a world where most are walking in darkness. And we get to be the ones that tell them about the light and point them to it. So let us believe that we will see the good of the Lord, both later in heaven and now while we are here. Let us pray that it is on earth as it is in heaven. And lastly, verse 14, we see a call as if to a congregation for them to commit themselves to. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage. Wait for the Lord. We are all facing our own unique struggles, and I can hardly fathom what I know a lot of you are going through. And I pray for you, mainly that you would remain steadfast despite any outcome. And this call to be strong isn't a call to be macho or man up, which I'm not sure if I can say in 2023, but it's a call to look at the foundation of your faith. What is your stronghold? The Lord is the stronghold of our lives. Of whom shall we be afraid? Be strong in the Lord. Take courage and throw your cares and concerns on him. It's what we wait on. As we move to communion, something that we do every week here at South Point, I want us to consider how this is a picture of us also waiting on the Lord. We do this, of course, out of remembrance of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, that his body was broken for us, his blood was poured out for us. And it's symbolized in this sacrament. But it's also something that we do regularly as we wait for the Lord. We will do this until he comes back and we feast with him in heaven. So while this symbolizes the work on the cross, let it also be a reminder, we wait for the Lord with patience until he calls us home. And let's do that now in remembrance to him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the finished work of your son. We wait on him. Much as the saints of old waited for his coming the first time, we wait eagerly for his coming a second time. And Father, I pray for those in this room that they would build a foundation of truths about you that would bring them great comfort when facing any trials or tribulations that they may experience or that they are experiencing now. And Father, I pray that we as a church would not leave them to themselves, but that we would rally together with them, pointing them to your goodness, to your love for them. And Father, that they would gain the confidence that comes with being your child. 
Father, now as we go to communion, let us remember your son, that though we were rightfully separated from you because of our sin, Christ has made a way. And we hope in that. We rejoice in that. And we remember that now. Listen, his name that we.